This morning we read from Matthew chapter 17, beginning in verse 1. Six days later, Jesus took with him Peter and James and his brother John and led them up a high mountain by themselves. And he was transfigured before them, and his face shone like the sun, and his clothes became dazzling white. Suddenly there appeared to them Moses and Elijah talking with him. Then Peter said to Jesus, Lord, it is good for us to be here. If you wish, I will make three dwellings here, one for you, one for Moses, and one for Elijah. While he was still speaking, suddenly a bright cloud overshadowed them. From the cloud a voice said, This is my son, the beloved. With him I am well pleased. Listen to him. When the disciples heard this, they fell to the ground and were overcome by fear. But Jesus came and touched them, saying, Get up and do not be afraid. And when they looked up, they saw no one except Jesus himself alone. As they were coming down the mountain, Jesus ordered them, Tell no one about the vision until after the Son of Man has been raised from the dead. This is the word of God for the people of God. Thanks, Thanks be, be to, to God. God. So our text this morning describes the disciples as overwhelmed with fear, overcome by fear. We know from genetic research that there are genes in the genome. As they've researched this, they've been able to identify even the gene that has to do with fear and anxiety. They've noted on one gene if it's shorter, those people worry more. If that gene's a little longer, those people worry less. It's a predisposition. It's created. It's inborn. And yet, as we talk about that, I know if I say, oh, some people have a shorter gene, they're more predisposed to that. Some of you are thinking, oh, no, I have that gene, and you worry more. It's just the way it works out. We're all plagued from time to time with fear and anxiety and worry, but we know some more than others. We also know that brain chemicals and hormones have a lot to do with this. As one psychiatrist told me, you can have a perfectly good car and engine, but if you don't have gas in the tank or the right kind of gas, it's not going to run properly. She said the brain is the same way. If you don't have the proper hormones and the right numbers or amounts or balance, your brain is not going to run the way it should. Fear and anxiety can easily take over. Professor Levine, in her book on the Sermon on the Mount, where we've been reading and preaching from these last several weeks, talks about this very thing she says we hear jesus give good advice about no need to worry and she said yet my mother and her mother before her and all of our mothers all the way back to mount sinai worried i'm going to worry jewish mothers worry she grants that it's part of life that we worry that we have anxiety that at sometimes in some places we are overcome by fear jesus would not be talking about this in the sermon on the mount if it were not a common problem that we experience in our lives but even as we read in this 17th chapter about the disciples being overcome by fear 
Let's remember what Jesus said all the way back there in chapter 6. He was talking to the disciples and others who were listening about worry and anxiety and fear and how we need not worry about temporary things. And in fact, an antidote to worry and fear, he said, is to focus on God. Right there in Matthew 6, 33, he says, Seek first or strive first for the kingdom of God and God's righteousness. And then all these other things will find their proper place, will fall into order because we have the right focus at the core of our lives. He's saying focus on God. Focus on your relationship with God. Put that at the center as an antidote to anxiety and worry. Focus on that rather than the things you might be worrying about. In our story today, the disciples are following Jesus. They are seeking God, and yet they run into fear anyway. Matthew tells us that Jesus has taken these three in his inner circle, Peter, James, and John, and they've hiked up this high mountain, which is a sign they're seeking God. They're going to the high place, the lonely, quiet place to seek and search for God. Everything seems to be going fine. They're up on the mountain all of a sudden, They're beginning to have this spiritual, mystical experience where Jesus begins to reflect the glory of God, if you will. His face shines. His clothes become white. It's a reflection of the story we have from the Hebrew scriptures in earlier times where God was close. It all seems to be fine, so good. Peter's feeling so good. He decides to jump into this conversation that Jesus is having with Moses and Elijah. But then all of a sudden, Even as he speaks, something different happens. We read about it in verse 5. While Peter was still speaking, suddenly a bright cloud overshadowed them. And from the cloud, a voice said, This is my son, the beloved. With him I am well pleased. Listen to him. When the disciples heard this, they fell to the ground and were overcome by fear. This situation moves from this experience, this mystical, spiritual experience of wonder and awe of God being close. And all of a sudden, the glory and the brightness dissipate and the fear rears its head and takes over and drives these disciples to the ground. They are overcome, overcome by fear. Life can change quickly. I put that in your outline. It's so important to remember that life can change so quickly on us. I think of families who are caring for someone who's dying or elderly. They have often have this experience of the person being in decline over a period of time and then one day all of a sudden there's a rally and the person is more alert and talkative and you can just see feeling so much better the family sees recovery and then just as quickly the person dies life can change so quickly last year Actually, on this very date, there were a whole group of us from Boston Avenue who were in the Holy Land. We got to walk where Jesus walked. We got to see so many different places that we read about in our Gospels. 
It was a wonderful trip. We returned just before Ash Wednesday. I think it's safe to say we were all on a spiritual high. We thought this is going to be a different kind of Lent, a different kind of Easter celebration because we have seen the places of the wilderness, the temptation. We have walked into the empty tomb. Easter surely will be different. But before Easter could come, COVID came. And Easter was different, but not in the way we had imagined. Life can change so quickly. We can go from glory and brightness and joy and hope and great expectation to fear and darkness, to death and illness, to struggles. We can be overcome by fear. When life changes quickly, often it is accompanied by fear and uneasiness and uncertainty. In this story, this voice comes out of this bright cloud. and The voice overwhelms the disciples, but it tells them to listen. Listen to this one Jesus that you are with. And they do. Listen to how Matthew tells it in verse 7. After he says they were overcome by fear. But Jesus came and touched them saying, get up and do not be afraid. And when they looked up, they saw no one except Jesus himself alone. They see Jesus. And it soothes their soul. It drives the fear away. They're able to stand up. They get up and listen to him and follow him down the mountain. They're overcoming their fear because they're looking and listening to Jesus. I wonder if we can overcome our fears, if we can listen to Jesus so well during this Black History Month, I'm thinking in particular, can we overcome our fear of darker-skinned people? Now, I talk to white folks all the time who say, I'm not scared of black people. I'm not scared of other people, other ethnicities. And yet, research in America shows that a great majority of white people have never been in the house of a person of color, don't have a single friend who is black, and some report they have never even shaken the hand of somebody that was not white. And yet they tell me they're not afraid, they have no prejudice, there's no discrimination, and yet we can see in the research this great, this vast gulf between people who have different colors of skin. Isabel Wilkerson is a Pulitzer Prize-winning journalist, author, researcher, and scholar. She has recently published a book entitled Cast, C-A-S-T-E, Cast, The Origins of Our Discontents. She looks at the history of race relations in America. She also looks at the caste system in India, and she finds shocking parallels. She also looks 
at the Nazi regime and how they looked to America for how they could isolate and marginalize and criminalize a whole group of people. It's terrible to read, and yet it is beautifully written, deftly researched, and illuminates our understanding of who we have been as a people and as a country. I would recommend it to you. But in the book, she not only gives all the data and the research, she tells lots of stories. One is about a man who's raised in the South. He wants to get out of the South. He takes a job in the north part of the United States. He thinks he's prepared to work with people from lots of different backgrounds. But he says once he got there, he realized he had what he called this certain madness where it came to relating to dark-skinned people, black people, African-Americans. He said the rational part of him, the best part of him, wanted to do this. But he found a certain revulsion any time he was required to shake hands with a person of color. He said he realized that his training, the environment in which he grew up in the American South, was so deeply rooted within him that he had been taught that these people are unclean and not to be touched. He said even though he grew up around people with darker skin than his, he realized they were all in subservient roles. And now in his work life, in his career, where they were to be treated as equals, it threw him into a frenzy, into this certain madness he talks about. He said, I, I realize I was a captive to my own upbringing, that I wanted to do better. And yet every time I had to shake the hand of a dark-skinned person, I felt a revulsion. I felt this compulsion to go wash my hands because deep down inside of me I had been taught they are unclean. He said it was like a madness that even though he fought against it, it was part of who he was. She also tells the story of a frantic mother who pulled her child in from playing one day and drug her to the sink and began to scrub her white little hands as if her life depended on it. She began to tell her child, this is a white family, don't ever touch that other child again who happened to be a dark-skinned family. She said, they have germs. They are nasty. You're not to touch them. You have to be more careful. She got so intense as she was telling her daughter about this that her daughter began to cry. And then the mother began to cry. She said in that moment, she realized that she was in a box that had imprisoned her for her entire life that she had been taught about this separation of people based on skin color. And it had held her captive, that this was a manufactured terror that now she was teaching to her daughter, even as they stood there by the sink crying together. I wonder if we can see the prison of prejudice as a distortion. I still hear white people tell me 
in these sweeping overgeneralizations, I just can't trust them, referring to people with different skin color. They are not just as, and make some comparison that's negative toward them. They scare me. I mean, these are wild generalizations about a whole group of people that span the globe, and yet they're very real experiences for white people who have been raised in a way to believe that races should be separated, that people should be separated based on their skin color, and that it's okay to have laws to discriminate against people with different skin color. It's a difficult situation into which we have been born in this country. If you ever talk to someone, a white person, who's worked or been in a situation and encountered one black person or one person of color and then said something about all people of color, usually derogatory, based on that experience with one person, would any of us want to be judged by something someone else did that maybe we did not know only because we have the same color of skin as they do? In the book, Cast, and if you want to understand race relations in America, I really recommend that you give it a read. Toward the end of the book, Wilkerson discusses steps we can take to do better. She calls for what she calls radical empathy. Radical empathy. By which she means this. Let me read a few sentences from the book. Putting in the work to educate oneself and to listen with a humble heart to understand another's experience from their perspective. When you do, she says, it opens your spirit to the pain of another as they perceive it. It is to see all people as equally human, to value people based on the content of their character rather than the color of their skin. She posits that we need to be proactive. She says it like this. It is not enough to be tolerant. You tolerate mosquitoes in the summertime or the slush that collects at the crosswalk in the winter. You tolerate what you would rather not have to deal with and wish would go away. It is no honor to be tolerated. Every spiritual tradition says, love your neighbor as yourself, not tolerate them. Let me read you three more sentences she includes here. She writes this, none of us chose the circumstances of our birth. We had nothing to do with having been born into privilege or under stigma. We have everything to do with what we do with our God-given talents and how we treat others and our species from this day forward. I think that's where the disciples are. They were crouching in fear, and now Jesus has come to them and invited them to get up, to listen and follow him. And so they follow him down the mountain, the story tells us. 
But what are they going to do when they get back to the people? They're going to have to deal with their own prejudice and the prejudice of others. They do not all have the same experience. How are they going to treat other people different? How are they going to treat those they think are different than they are? The good news is here in this passage for us, though. It's God's voice coming out of this cloud, speaking to them. It's in verse 5 when the voice says, This is my son, the beloved. With him I am well pleased. Listen to him. Listen. Are you listening? Are you willing for God's guidance and direction to be a part of all of your life? To guide and direct you, not in any, only in the things you think religious, but in your career, in your decisions, where you live, how you use your resources. Are you willing to surrender all to God in the name of Christ? We talked about this not so long ago in terms of John Wesley and his covenant prayer. And how he's talking about that we need to yield all of ourselves and all aspects of our living over to Christ. Jesus is a revelation of God, and He's teaching us how to live. He's most likely a brown-skinned person through which God is speaking to us in this most famous sermon ever that we've been reading from in Matthew. There are the lessons by which we can live Remember, Jesus starts out by saying there's blessings for everyone and lists several of those. And then he says to those listening, you are the salt of the earth. You are the light of the world. There is good work to do and you can do it. And God is here to help you. He goes on to talk about how God is pouring God's love into you so that you might be full, that you might experience the fullness of life because of this divine love filling you up and pouring over so that it impacts and affects all your relationships and all you do it affects how you pray and how you give because God's love has changed and transformed you Jesus says in that most famous sermon ever preached that once that love has filled you up it is God working in you and it's transforming you ever more into the likeness of Christ but he says in that sermon also making you ever more into children of God. In our seventh core value, we talk about that we strive for excellence in, the, in our service to God. Paul talks about the more excellent way in his letter to the Corinthians. He says it is the way of love or the way of agape, that is to do the good and will the good for others, any and all with whom we might interact. Let us be a people who seek to live this more excellent way, this way of love of God and love of neighbor for all. Let us be a people that listen to Jesus and then get up and follow him. Amen. And thanks be to God.